my name is Jay. I am one of the pastors here on staff. Um, I am excited to be with you guys. So uh, just to kind of orient us, we're in the last stretch. Next week, uh, Pastor Vanessa is going to close out our series on Mark. It's a short book, um, but we're going to be done next week, and then we're going to go into the Advent season. But before that is Sunday brunch, and I pause because I love breakfast food. <laughs> so on that 21st, um, you will see me in my happy space. Um, but if you're a youth, we're going to meet after. We're going to talk about where we're going to cook. Um, there will be more than popcorn um, so, and toast. Uh, but it'll be good. It'll be delicious. So, um, And so, man, this sermon series, I hope it's been really good for you guys. Um, it's been intentional to kind of uh, dig us deep into um, a book. And so it's been Mark. And really, if you look at 2021... What better space to be in but to be grounded in God's Word? And so that was our hope, um, and so it's been amazing for me, and I hope it's been the same for you guys. Now, um, to, to kind of start us off today, um, I got some numbers, and these numbers are going to reflect the strength of the American dollar. You guys with me here? So, so let's get ready, and they'll be up there. So in 2020, the gross domestic product, or the GDP, was 20.94 trillion US dollars. Just let that sink in. And according to a report released on October 28th uh, by the US Bureau of Economics, the current dollar GDP increased by 7.8% at an annual rate, or uh, $432.5 billion. In the third quarter, uh, that level increased or no, that level went up to 23.17 trillion. So then the U.S. dollar index, and, and this is a, it's a measure of the value of the U.S. dollar relative, relative to the value of a basket of currencies of the majority of the U.S.'s most significant trading partners. Okay, that number, uh, when I last checked on Friday, was 94.22. Got that? And, and just to put a little bit of perspective, our California 2020 GDP was about 3.09 trillion. Like, how do you even spend that in a lifetime? So, um, to be super honest, I have no idea what these numbers really mean. <laughs> I don't, like, econos is not my deal in school, so, um, but it sounded amazing, and you know, it's like trillion, okay. Um, but here's the thing, even if I can't make meaning out of what this is, I know what this all represents. And what it represents is power, wealth, and status. See, there's not only an image that is portrayed by the American dollar, but an image that we pursue. And so the question I want to kind of start us off with uh, today, the question is this, whose image are you pursuing? Whose image are you pursuing? And I hit deep, like, oh, shoot, <laughs> we're going to go there today. Um, so, okay, there is something interesting. As I studied this passage, I, originally I thought it was something totally different, and then I actually studied, and I was like, oh, shoot, okay. But it wasn't the passage that was most interesting. It was how this passage was applied. And, and in the Christian faith, what I saw was there were two primary ways that this passage was applied. It was one... Should we be paying taxes as Christians? And then number two, it was used as an argument for the separation of church and state. 
which at a core is just talking about government, right? And so I, I can see I can see how you know the passage would be applied in these two areas, but I don't believe that this was Jesus' primary concern. Like if this was going to be a timeless principle and a timeless truth that he would want his people to know, I don't think it was about, hey, should you be paying taxes? And hey, is government legit or not? <laughs> like, I just don't see that. And here's why. This will be on here. In context, our literary context of this passage, we are, our passage today is, is a second confrontation in a series of five. And this all starts in Mark 11. So I think it's going to be split up. But the first one is this. There was a question brought up to Jesus about his authority and was raised by the Sanhedrin. And this is in Mark 11, 27 through 33. The second part, which is our passage today, was the question of paying taxes by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And that's Mark 12, 13 through 17. The third one is the question of the resurrection by the Sadducees. The fourth one was the, the question of the greatest commandment by the scribes. And, and I think I don't, maybe Jesus was like, all right, you guys want to confront me? I'll just confront myself. So he raised the question of who the, whose, son, whose son is the Christ? And Jesus asked himself that question. See, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they were all the religious elites who held positions of power, uh, and whether that was religious or political. So these were all the major players, and Jesus was getting attacked by all sides of them. And so what does our passage bring to mind today? We're going to go into uh, our passage today, and it'll be on the screen. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. A lot in here. <laughs> There's a lot in here. So uh, let's just jump in. Let's let's work through this passage. Um, I, I want us to be able to get a, a good understanding of what's happening here, because there's there's some very real implications that we have to wrestle with. And the place I want to start is this: Who are the Pharisees and who are the Herodians? See, the Pharisees they were a group of religious elites. Right? They were leaders who were considered experts in the law, and they were known to be legalistic and self-righteous. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were a sect of the Jews who supported King Herod Antipas, Antipas, which meant they favored Roman rule. Another way to look at these two groups could be that the Pharisees could be seen as the conservatives, and the Herodians could be seen as the liberals who are pro-government. So Jesus has, I say he rallied, but these two opposing groups rallied together. They were in conflict. Yet there was enough threat by Jesus that they said, hey, we've we got to work together. And this wasn't the first encounter either. In Mark 3, 6, 
the Pharisees and the Herodians already began plotting. Right? They began plotting together how to, to see how they might kill Jesus. They were already in cahoots early in the book of Mark. Why? What was so threatening about Jesus? What was so threatening about his presence? Honestly, boil down to three things. Power, status, and wealth. Right? That was what the Pharisees and that was what the Herodians held in their respective circles. The Pharisees had that in the religious circles. The Herodians had that in the political circles. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. So here's where I want to stop. Um, I'm kind of taking a cue from yesterday's uh, trauma-informed training. And we had content, and then we had conversation. And that conversation helped to really drill some stuff down. So I have uh, three questions for us to consider, and I want us to actually discuss it. So for you guys in here, you guys online, type it in. You guys outside, try to huddle together a little bit. And here they are. Where have you seen the church pursue power, status, and wealth? Do you think the church should hold power, status, and wealth? And then the third question is, how have you seen the church give these things away? So if you guys can't, I'm, I'm going to invite you like, talk amongst yourselves. But kind of work through these three questions. I'm going to go, we're not going to have too, too much time. But I'd love us to start some of this conversation. And feel free, you can work your way from top down or just skip around. But um, would love for you guys to just, let's start conversating about this. All right, let me, let me bring us back. There's, there's a lot of conversation, so um, it, there's some really good stuff to bring. So I, I'd actually love for us to like share it out. Um, so just, you know, feel free if you want to raise your hand or just start talking. But what were some of the conversations that you guys were having around church and wealth and power and status? And I'll, I'll try to repeat it for those uh, online. I think that uh, I've seen the church pursuing power uh, on the political realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The name of the church. Yeah. yeah. The, like, uh, the, of the, the point, the point of the president seems to me like churches go there and kind of portray themselves as being the great, the best prayer for. Uh, that's my recollection. Yeah, and that's very public space. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for churches to be there, and, and whether it's like to, to pray at part of the inauguration, whatever it is, and, and it's very much like status. status. So, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, sorry. Well, didn't I catch? So what was said for you guys online, uh, it, was, uh, it, it was the church essentially like making their bed with politicians. And, um, and really, in the, you know, I, not just this last presidency, but, um, but in so many spaces, like it, it's, they're making their space known. And, and so it's, it's very much like praying for, for the world to see, for people to see. Um, and, and they may declare the name of Jesus, but are they really proclaiming the name of Jesus or something else? So, yeah. 
um, Nan had Nan had a good example about um, church giving away um, some some of their wealth anyway, and that um, Jesus free um, in how they've come alongside uh, the solidarity and um, uh, at the community centers here in Fullerton or, or one of them. Um, right, they they are a church that is holding wealth and status in Fullerton, but at the same time, they are giving that wealth away and. First, question to kind of like cringe at what has been done by the church in the past, but but there are still some definitely some positive things that, that are going on in Fullerton and across the country. Yeah. Yeah. So for the you guys online, <laughs> what we shared was uh, EBP Fullerton um, really just having a fund that they just bless the community with, and our space here you can't tell now. Um, but was was blessed by uh, part of that fund, uh, what, 2015 or something like that. Um, but it was a significant chunk of money. So so there are churches that are giving wealth and, and status away and all that. So maybe one more, Dave. Yeah, um, so I was on the, the research team for um, Esther uh, <laughs> um, so, so if I could summarize all that. Oh, unofficially as a So, to briefly summarize, it's um, there's evidence that uh, missions work is used as another form of colonialism, yeah. and and yeah, so to make the American church look good. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you for answering that one. <laughs> so, um, so the response was that yes, the church should be holding power, status, and wealth. Um, and one of the examples was was Nehemiah, and he was appointed that. Um, and what he did was he did God's work, and he used the the status and the wealth that he had. So, um, this is fantastic. Um, thank you guys for. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, we could just spend a whole day almost just kind of deconstructing all this. We're not because there's more to this text. Um, so let's continue. 
Um, and so, you know, so we have the, Harris, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, they approach Jesus, right? And how do they approach Jesus? What do they use? They use flattery, which is really just what? Insincere praise, right? Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. These guys milked it. It made it sound so, so dang good. But what they were really doing was publicly putting Jesus on the spot. See, he was now boxed in. He would have to give a straightforward response, and if he didn't, he would end up losing credibility as a rabbi. So Jesus really only had two ways to answer this question, or their question. And it was going to be either a yes or no response. I want to stop here really quickly, because this, this kind of hits home you know, for a lot of us. And it's the tension of feeling like we're, we're stuck or boxed in, in an either-or situation. And this tension is something that has hit kind of a, a new level, a new norm, especially with how polarized things have become in these past couple of years. And it's not just politically. It's in personal health. It's in school. It's in work. Like for myself personally, I mean, I've, I've been holding this tension between uh, work and rest, um, exercise and getting stuff done, uh, between spending time with my family and getting personal time away so that I can refuel, right? And I think it's starting to wear on us, this, this tension that we're carrying. We might be feeling exhausted from it. And today, and in, in kind of just in this Selah, this pause in, the, in this passage, really what I would hope for us to hear is that the tension is real. If you guys feel exhausted, that's very real. And if you're just dead tired of this circumstance, that's very real too. And we see this situation in this passage where Jesus encounters that tension. See, if Jesus said yes, that it is lawful to pay the imperial tax, it meant that he would have dealt a blow to the Jews who saw the imperial tax as a constant reminder of the oppression they lived under. And these would have been the same people who had just proclaimed him as king. On the other hand, if Jesus said it was not lawful to pay the tax, then he could have been arrested and tried for sedition and insurrection. So Jesus felt that tension. And so how does he respond? There's something amazing here. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Now there's, a few, there's just a couple of things that are happening here, and, and I won't go too much into detail, but I think it's helpful for us to be able to identify in, in the context of our passage. The first is that Jesus doesn't step into the trap. Instead, he reveals their hypocrisy. He springs the trap on them. And how? Because they were the ones found with the denarius. They had the coin. Right? The second is this. Jesus doesn't give up his authority as a rabbi, and this is very important. And what's kind of amazing is really the tactic of how he did it. He used uh, this rhetorical practice that was common um, in, in Jewish uh, literature where he ends up refuting their question by asking a counter-question. And that counter-question exposes, exposes his uh, opponents um, to 
to like a secondary attack. Like they attacked him, and then he came around and snuck it back to them. I don't fully get it, but it was pretty smart, right? And so what does he say? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. I actually have an image of Denarius. And if you guys are curious, um, you, you can actually buy one. I don't know, I don't think it's real, but you can buy one on Etsy. Um, <laughs> if you just want to collect probably fake Denarius. No? Okay, anyhow, the images, it will be there maybe. But it's a small silver coin, right? That was the property of the emperor. And so on one side was the head of Caesar in the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side was the inscription, chief priest. So this wasn't just any ordinary coin. There it is. This was the property of Caesar. And it represented a, a lot, right? And so we can start to understand like Jesus' response really made sense, right? If this coin is Caesar's, yeah, give it back to Caesar. That's fine. And that's perhaps why, like in that last line of our passage, it says that they were amazed by his response. Because it's super simple. Yet he answered their question. Now, there's a little more to the denarius. All adult men and women were required to pay this tax. It was about a day's wage and it was used by the emperor to pay his soldiers, Roman officials, and Jewish leaders uh, who were in collaboration with Rome. So what did it mean? The denarius was a representation of Caesar's power, his status, and his wealth, or his rule, right? And this ties back to the American dollar. Much like the Pharisees and the Herodians who were in possession of a denarius, so are we also implicated in the economic system of America. We're all part of this power, status, and wealth that is prevalent here in America, just by the fact of you being here alone. Maybe if you're a little kid and you're not spending anything, maybe, but your parents are, right? So you and your collective family, you guys all, and you guys outside too, everyone is implicated in this. And so it's not so much whether it's, it's a good or bad, right? It's not that the system is necessarily good or bad. But I think we need to acknowledge that we're all part of that system. And it needs to be said that power, status, and wealth, they're not inherently evil, okay? Money and possessions are one of the most talked about topics of the Bible. So rather than possessing wealth, status, and power. It's the pursuit of these things that can cause, uh, that can corrupt and cause violence to others, right? And so here, here's a, another set of questions. We're not gonna discuss it. It's a little more personal in a way, um, but here it is. What systems of power, status, and wealth might you be a part of? And again, this is neither good or bad, but simply an acknowledgement of it. That's the first step we need to take is just to acknowledge that it exists. And so whether you're a student, whether you're, um, you know, any age, high school, college, whatever it might be, um, whether you're working at home, you all, all of us have spheres of influence. We possess leadership. We're created to lead. Um, we possess some form of wealth just by the fact of us being here. How did you get here? Um, you know, so, so there's a system that we're all a part of. 
And the second part of that question is, how have you felt pulled to pursue these things? Where have you felt pulled to pursue these things? See, the Pharisees and the Herodians were in pursuit of power, status, and wealth, which is why they felt threatened by Jesus' presence and plotted to kill him. And so for us, we need to do a heart check. We need to do a heart check on our motivation for why we would pursue power, status, and wealth. Here's the question. Whose image are we pursuing? If it's Jesus, then there's hope. There's hope if we're pursuing the image of Jesus. Then why? Because he gives us a way out. He invites us into a new way of living and a new way of seeing and thinking about things. And where does he start? What's his call? Render to God what is God's. So if you here have given your life to Jesus, you have said yes to him, then you are his. You are his possession. You are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. You have been washed in the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed. You have been reconciled. You have been given new purpose. You have been bought. Sounds weird. But Jesus paid that price. So what does he ask? He asks of our whole lives. That's what we are to render to God, our whole being. And so um, I, I want to close this with a, a couple of thoughts. And, and really, um, you know, how, how do we tangibly navigate um, the experience of wealth, status, and power? Um, and the reality of the American system that we're in, and, and you know, at large, the global system. And at the same time, how are we to live in the kingdom of God? And, and I want to give us these handles because it's not easy to navigate, right? And, and it has to be said that this is not an either-or situation. It's not you either live in the world or you live in God's kingdom, right? I know for, for a lot of us, and, and I kind of grew up in that a bit, where I was taught, hey, you got to separate yourself from the world because the world is sinful, the world is broken, the world is nasty and evil. And God's kingdom is the only answer for that. So, pull away. But that's not what Jesus invites us into. We're not to withdraw, we're not to isolate. And at the same time, we're not to simply go with the status quo, right? We're not to say, okay, hey, this is fine, this is dandy, I'm going to just kind of be here. That's not what God's called us to either. We're called to give our whole lives wholly unto God. We're called into a new way of living and a new way of seeing and thinking about things. And so, where do we start? And how can we do that? The first thing is this. we got to be real about the tension. See, there is tension that exists between these two systems. The system of the world and the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. It's not an equal tension. Right? It's not like you have two big guys on opposite ends of the rope and they're trying to see who's going to win at this game of tug of war. That's not the case. God's kingdom has overcome. right? And more than that, the glory that is there in God's kingdom far, far outweighs anything in this world. So for one, if you're still sitting in the space of like, man, this world has some stuff to offer me still you are still being tricked. 
kind of like the Matrix. You got to take that pill, right? <laughs> and I, I give a nod to, to Matrix because coming out, I'm excited for that, you know. Um, but we're kind of in it, right? It's that reality. There's a choice that we've been given, and you choose. Do you want to be aware of God's kingdom and persist and pursue and prevail in the reality that God's kingdom is here on earth? Or would you rather live in ignorance and blindness and sin and brokenness and enslavement? Right? So how are we to do that? Why is there tension, actually? There's tension because our sin and our habituation towards old ways of living those constantly pull us back towards the pursuit of power, status, and wealth in a negative way. So Romans 12.2 says, So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4.22-24 says to put off our old self and be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on our new self created in the likeness of God. In short, it's discipleship. If you have said yes to Jesus, you need to say yes to discipleship. And if you can say yes to discipleship, we better be taking that seriously. The second thing is this. Be honest about the influence. So be real about the tension. Be honest about the influence. Why? It's not just a question of whose image are you pursuing, but it's also a question of whose image are we being formed by. We are either being formed by the image of God in our pursuit of him, or we are being formed by the image of this world and the pursuit of it. And there's so many avenues that we are being influenced uh, in, in our day and age. There's social media, there's relationships, there's marketing, there's movies. It's everywhere. We're constantly being pulled to pursue power, status, and wealth. And one of the ways, just practically, if we can kind of get an idea, is that you start to not be as satisfied with what you have. Because you start to see what other people have, and you're like, oh man, that guy has the latest model of iPhone. Or that guy's got a new car. Or they just did a remodel of their house. I want more of that. And what I have is not enough. That's how we are formed and influenced by the world around us. The third one is this. We've got to be open to the conversation, friends. Um, I, I really wanted to try to give us some, like, just some one, two, threes that are like, hey, you can do this. And then you can be free of the power, status, and wealth pursuit. I try. <laughs> I can't. Because it's super complex, and each of us come from very different contexts, right? We as people are very different. Our, our situation, our culture, our stat, all of that is very different and very unique. So how do we do it? We've got to navigate that tension by having conversations. It takes wisdom, and it takes discipleship. And that discipleship is not done in isolation. We need to have conversations amongst each other, because there are some of us here that are doing a great job of it. Some of us here are still struggling with it. Some of us here are just being awoken to the reality of, of this system. But we can all be moving along towards the glory of God. And it doesn't work if we're not talking to one another. You guys outside too, right? And the other thing is, we've got to be talking with God too. If we're just simply going to have conversation this way, but not here, that's not going to work either. You're going to have a long, long conversation with nothing happening. And part of that happens is, is that we start to bear one another's burdens. I want to end with this quote. Sorry, I'm going long here. Um, someone somewhere, I don't know who, I don't know where I saw it, but I saw it, and I think I paraphrased it correctly or I captured it correctly, and it says this. 
If we give everything to God, then there's nothing left for Caesar. If we give all of ourselves to God, there's nothing left for Caesar. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, um, for, you um, for the reality of your kingdom, God, that you didn't leave us stuck in this system of, of pursuit of status and wealth and, and trying to be more and do more and all that. God, you gave our souls rest. You said, hey, I have it all for you. The answer is in me. Receive it. So Lord, today I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to live out your, your kingdom here on earth. Help us to navigate this tension of the American system, the global system, the systems that are in place in this world, while at the same time being the light that you've called us to. God, we can't do that without you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think this represents a system, too. I think this represents a different system. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it says that whenever we partake of the communion, we proclaim, we proclaim Jesus. Um, this somehow, it just it represents the system of, of the gospel. Whenever we partake of this, we remember what Jesus did. And we remember what Jesus is doing. And we remember what Jesus will do. Specifically in, in, the, in the first Corinthians text, it says that we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes back. We're, we're remembering what he did and what he will do. So the communion is a proclamation of, of the gospel. And, and before, there was a time when the proclamation of the gospel was reserved only for like those special Christians. You know what I mean? Um, before the proclamation of the gospel was for like those people with some kind of like, they, were, they just knew some stuff that other people weren't privy to. But what we see, like, what we see in Jesus' ministry is that he's always empowering people, right? In his death, he empowers his disciples, and his disciples empower other people, and becomes one of the greatest movements of, of all kind. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why, fast forward to 2,000 years from now, like, us here where we are as a church, we, we feel like the, um, the priesthood of all believers is, is, is such a special unique thing because it's a different power system. And, we, and so whenever we partake of this, we get to proclaim the gospel, not only to ourselves, but to each other. And um, the staff and I were having this conversation throughout the week, and um, Pastor Vanessa reminded me of something. Um, and this is just on me. You know, like, I, I thought, like, okay, it will be the most simplest thing if we just kind of cut out one part and just get straight to, like, hey, this is the cup of Christ poured out for me, and then we all just kind of accept that and... Um, it, um, accept that fact and partake of it together, and, which is legit. Um, but the part that we take out is the cup of Christ poured out for you, the body broken for you. And um, in traditional church litur liturgy context, that was said from someone who's in front leading the communion as a way of, hey, this is what I'm telling you is happening. And the community responds by saying, I acknowledge what you're saying. And they repeat, they repeat it. But we're, we're adding that part about the cup of Christ poured out for you um, because as a reminder that as a church body we are going to say this to one another when we look when we look at this cup we say this is the cup of Christ poured out for you this is the gospel for you and as we partake in it we say this is also for me 
we need this gospel as much as anybody else. And that's a reminder we are reading.